Hey guys, this is Tim. We're doing something a little bit different uh, for the Sunday show this week because of all the news, because of indictment too, because I'm so high on my own supply with Donald Trump once again having to face the music. We had a, a really lengthy intro between me and JVL where we got into this indictment, what the ramifications are, both legal and political, you know, some news that has broken since the Friday podcast. We covered that. And then we have a two-part interview with Ryan Holiday. The first is me and Ryan talking about his life and his career. Like me, uh, he was uh, a a media maven, a, a rat fucker maybe even, and he decided he was unsatisfied with that. He wrote a wonderful book called Trust Me, I'm Lying about, uh, about marketing in the corporate world rather than the political world. And then he took a complete right turn in his career and now has a podcast empire, you know, where he discusses uh, stoicism and stoic virtues. I think that you can get a lot of value out of that part of the podcast. And then there's a second portion where we bring JVL in and talk about Ryan's new book, The Daily Dad. Uh, we do advice on being a dad. What's it like to be a gay dad? What's it like to be a dad with teenagers? Uh, what's it like to be a dad who's also a stoic expert and whether he lives up to his principles? You will enjoy at least one of the three parts, I promise. Up next is me and JVL, and then we'll bring in Ryan. Enjoy. JVL, we've seen it. Jack Smith dropped the hammer. We have an indictment. So before we get to our usual Sunday interview, I figured we had to chomp some wood on this. What is your, what's your reaction? Uh, are you in the Hugh Hewitt camp? Nothing to see here? Jeez. <laughs> Hugh Hewitt. That guy, uh... It's really bad. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. It's, uh, it's also the, really the crimes, stupid. The crimes are serious. It's very stupid. You have the guy. I mean, it's not ticky-tack stuff. You've got audio recordings demonstrating his state of mind, right? Because everybody's always, well, you know, did he really understand that? And he's like literally saying, yeah, these aren't declassified. I didn't do it before I left office. You better not stand too close. <laughs> He's got lawyers jumping offside here. He's we've got him asking lawyers to lie for him to the for the, it's really bad. I just you know it's I I feel like though we're in the Dukes of Hazard and you and I and everybody else in America and Jack Smith are Roscoe Pico train and we're just like how are them Duke boys going to get out of it this, this time? Yeah. You know and somehow he's going to take the general lee and jump over the river, and we're gonna be left clutching. I want to talk about the end game at the end, but I, we do. It's just it's crazy, and we have seventy indictments. Uh, the the details on this one, you know, by the time we taped both Secret and and the Friday show with Charlie, should go listen to the actual indictment hadn't been out. We knew a lot about what it was, but but the pic, you know, some of the details that we've got in this indictment and these pictures, his bathroom. And the thing that jumps out to me is there's a text that just shows you how aware they all were of the criming they were doing. There's a text yeah. from one Trump staffer to another Trump staffer that's like, what sh you know, it's like the boss wants to keep his papers. And then it's like, well, where should we put this box? And the one Trump staffer is like, well, we're there's a little bit of room left in the shower. It's like, in fact, do you remember the movie <laughs> Blow where they're like, Johnny Depp's making all this money and they didn't know where to put it in the house? Like they had to start like putting it under floorboards and that. They're like, is there any room in the guest bathroom? No. Like we're out. Like we have so many boxes of classified docs that, that we don't we don't even know where to put them. So that's one element of it. You hit the lawyers. Now, we also have his staffer. Um, his, his body man that has been also indicted, who, who was specifically basically plotting with him 
on what should we do with this? Should we get rid of these documents? Uh, you know, uh, they're discussing about how how the feds want them. And, and Trump's just like, well, wouldn't it just be better if we got rid of them? I mean, j- the the specificity with which they acknowledge that they know that they're doing something illegal and that they're going to do it anyway because they don't care. To me, like, uh, number one, just is, is it would be the perfect, most hubristic way for Trump to go down. It's like the classic Trump, oh, I'm too, you know, I don't have to follow the rules thing. And then it would be the perfect way to Trump go down in the veepish sense. Like if the content gods are with us, this should have been the Dave Mandel interview because like it's the most veepish crime of all time. Uh, but it's so it is it's his hubris it's it's stupid but it's also just right there plain plain as day i can't believe that so much of this is in writing right i mean i had always thought that one of the things trump took from growing up in the 70s in new york uh, around made guys all the time was that you do everything in person via voice you do not write anything down yeah, isn't there a famous scene in The Wire where yes. the, the drug dealers have all gotten yeah, together Stringer to sort of Bell. organize? No, they have Stringer a, Bell. They're in like a classroom where he's going no, through it's everything. No, it's like a conference room yeah, at a local hotel. Room, it's hysterical. Right, yeah. And there's one eager beaver, like young drug yeah. lord, who's there taking notes. And at the end, you know, Stringer's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, like, we're going to be organized. we got to have minutes of the meetings. What Stringer Bell's like, no, you don't ever write it down. You don't take minutes on a criminal fucking conspiracy. <laughs> Yeah, so I want my question for you. So there's two parts to this JVL that I want your reaction to. Before, so let's table the. Will we get to see Trump in orange? Orange is the new orange element of this for one second, and do the politics first. You know, a lot of our discussion with Charlie on Friday. I assume you and Sarah's discussion on Friday was about the Republican response to this, and you know, Charlie yep. was like focused on the handful of good Republicans, but it's like it was pretty shocking that. You know, Mike Lee, constitutionalist Mike Lee was like, this is a banana republic. This is all before the indictment, right? Josh Hawley's out there saying we're jailing people like we're a third world country. Marco was out there saying it. Kevin McCarthy, Mark Levin. So, I mean, all these just just fucking bozos before they even saw the indictment were out there doing the, oh, this is, you know, this is an illegal Biden regime attack on on Trump because he's the leader in the primary. All, All this stupid nonsense. Can they keep that up in the face of this? <laughs> of course they can. <laughs> Not only that, let me tell you what's going to happen. There have been a handful of people in Conservative Inc. who have like been really good on this over the last sure. 10 hours. DeSantis fans. Eric Erickson. DeSantis fans yeah. who were looking yeah. at this and be like, what? This is bad. Those people, I swear to God, I'm, t- I'm reporting to you from the future. My time machine is right behind me. I just parked it. When we get to uh, to an actual trial, many of these people are going to say, uh, well, I mean, look, what Trump did wasn't good, but the horrible misconduct by this prosecutor mm-hmm. here has made it so we just can't, you know, they, they, boy, this jury can't find a, a guilty verdict. There really, there isn't quite enough compelling evidence and the, you know, the prosecution misconduct. It'll, it'll be literally, this is January 6th impeachment two. But you remember, there were a lot of people on the Republican side who were like, this thing that just happened, this insurrection was really bad. And then they got to impeach him and they're like, 
Well, I don't know if the Democrats really did this impeachment in the best way. Yeah. I think the Democrats really needed to have done X, Y, and Z. And so, therefore, I cannot in good conscience support their we effort to remove Donald Trump. We can't rush the impeachment. Oh, wait. And now that he's gone, ooh, we can't technically impeach somebody that's not yeah, the president anymore. I'm so sorry. And also, they didn't call witnesses. If maybe if they had called witnesses, I could have, you know what I'm saying? Like John Bolton, who wouldn't. Wouldn't agree to come forward voluntarily as a witness yeah. and then criticized impeachment for not having witnesses. <laughs> yeah. This is where where that's heading. Once we actually get to the rubber meeting the road of an actual prosecution. I agree with you. Let me just do a little pushback. The fact that DeSantis is out there, the fact that they haven't they have an off ramp in a way that maybe they didn't during those impeachments, a clearer one at least, doesn't keep a few more of them on side. By the time we get to a trial, DeSantis will either be the future or the past. There. Right. And I mean, no trial is going to happen until we are we have decided who the the next nominee is. And so I think what you'll have is a dance where you'll have DeSantis doing the performative. I got I would pardon Trump. This is weaponization of the government. And then you have the DeSantis conservatism Inc. people saying, boy, this Trump stuff is terrible. One more thing before we get to your second report from the future, then I'll let you go. Merrick Garland's side of this took a lot of heat yeah. about moving slowly, you know, from the left. Uh, obviously, he's taking bullshit heat from the right about how, you know, he's doing politicized attacks. It's to date, everything has been by the book. They have the goods. He's going to be in court. See you next Tuesday in, in maybe an unfavorable district because they're doing things by the book. Something to be said for that, right? Does it matter that, that, that Biden, Garland, Smith, have just been choir boys on this? I mean, it, as a matter of politics, it doesn't matter. But as a matter of good governance and return to norms and all that stuff, I mean, this is, I said this to Sarah on The Secret today, the level projection here, which drives me absolutely effing insane, is you have the people who defended the Ukrainian drug deal, in which the president of the United States weaponized our foreign military aid to an ally because he wanted to to force the head of state of an American ally to participate in a skunk works campaign against his likely presidential opponent. Those people complaining about the weaponization of the Department of Justice, their word, because uh, Merrick Garland has done everything exactly by the book and outsourced the decision to an independent counsel, and the independent counsel is a, you know, a Republican conservative type guy. The, the, the level of hypocrisy there, I think, might finally be off the chart. I, I don't think there's anything past that scale. We've hit the, you know, the, the Google or Googleplex or infinity end of, of the cardinality scale. There. Okay. Here's my final thing for you. I know I'm, I'm yeah. guessing I'm representing some listeners in this. I've been refusing to let myself even think about the possibility of Trump in jail. I know you're going to try to rain on my parade here. I've been, I've been, I did a little mimosa this morning. I know you're trying to rain on my parade, but these are pretty cut and dry counts. I, I mean, it's the type of thing that regular uh, rank and file members of the military, et cetera, people that have classified information get punished for all the time. Uh, is it? Can I not start to get a little hope? You can see the twinkle in my eye. I know this is audio only, so imagine the twinkle in my eye, listeners. Like, it's possible. I mean, anything is possible. You're saying there's a chance? There's a chance of anything. But why not? But I have a very, very difficult time imagining a scenario in which 
he sees the inside of a prison cell. I, I just can't see Even it. looking at the indictment? Even with just how blanket it is? Yeah. I and mean, he says that he know that he is committing a crime and they have the goods? He's pardoned or, you know, either by a, a DeSantis or by a Biden or by himself. Or he beats the rap because there's one juror who sort of nullifies the case. Or they cut a plea deal in which he, you know, pleads out to something so there's no jail time and the government could save face. And he can say, you know, as soon as he's done, he can then, as Elon Musk has done with many of his plea agreements, uh, you know, he can say all that stuff that I, I swore to in that government thing with the SEC. No, it's all lies. This yeah. is a total prosecution witch hunt. All of those things seem to me much more likely than... He's convicted and goes to jail. All right. Well, I'm starting to let myself have a little bit of hope. Just a little bit. Don't do it, Tim. It's the hope that kills you. Okay. Uh, that's a good way to leave it because the next conversation is much more soul enriching and not about politics. Take a break. Listen to Ryan Holiday and I discuss, you know, how we, uh, you know, got our wayward lives back on track and then a little bit of time discussing fatherhood with Ryan JVL and me, and, and he's got a new book out that's a great gift for dads of all ages. I hope you guys enjoy this. We'll be back on Wednesday, but first, a friends at Acid Tongue. Hey guys, welcome to the Next Level Podcast. I am here with my weirdly synergistically connected friend in Bastrop, Texas, Ryan Holiday. Uh, my BFF JBL will be in for the second half of this podcast. We're going to talk about dad stuff. This is a pre-Father's Day episode. So if you just, you know, if you're just here for fatherly advice, you can fast forward 30 minutes. But in the meantime, me and Ryan are going to talk about our feelings. Ryan, what's happening, bro? Not much. Not much. I love your background there. Where are you in your in your bookstore? Next to my bookstore in Texas. Just built out a studio for my podcast. So I don't think this was done when you were here. What was that, last summer? Yeah, last summer. I took an Uber straight in from the airport to check out the Painted Porch bookstore. I had to do it. Okay. So for people who don't know you, obviously you'll have some super fans that are here of the Daily Stoic. I just want to give like a one minute background okay. on our relationship and how it started. I received a DM from you. I had not read, which was a personal failing, a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying that you wrote, what, 10 years ago? Yeah, I wrote it in 2011. Yeah, so over 10 years ago. So you're like, read my book. And I think that we need to do a podcast together because we might be the same person. Yeah. Just kind of like a bizarro in a bizarro world situation. So you wrote this book, Trust Me, I'm Lying About Your Time as a corporate PR rat fucker. <laughs> I was a political PR rat fucker. Um, the, the book similarly is part expose, part mea culpa. And since then, you've turned to the light and had a, just a unbelievably impressive run of books and podcasts and a whole little uh, stoicism related mini industry. I don't know. What do you call your stoicism vertical? Yeah, I don't know. I talk about ancient philosophy, which you'd think would be profoundly unpopular, uh, particularly yeah. on social media. And the exact opposite has turned out to be true. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for you on it. So we're going to get into stoicism. We're yeah. going to make stoicism cool for our listeners. But first, I want to go back to that, the original book, Trust Me, I'm Lying. So yeah, you are deep in the PR world doing, you know, marketing PR stuff for American Apparel and, and other places. What was the process for you for deciding like, this is very unfulfilling, I feel bad, and I need to do something about it? 
Yeah, you know, uh, I think when you were here, I, I recommended that book to you, The Harder They Fall, about yeah. this publicist. And I remember reading that book. This is a book by Bud Schulberg, who wrote On the Waterfront. And it's this sort of book about a, a publicist, uh, like a mob-affiliated publicist who sort of realizes that he's a rat fucker, to use your phrase, and wants to get out. And I remember reading that book and it being sort of like a total awakening and being like, I got to get out of this. My contribution to society is net negative. This isn't what I signed up for. Why am I doing this? You know, if people were doing what I was doing in other areas, the world would be really bad. So I remember having that awakening and thinking that, you know, I moved on very, very quickly. And I remember recently I picked up that book and I was looking at it and I, I saw these notes I wrote to myself about it. And I was like, okay, well, I could probably look on Amazon and see where I bought that. And then I would know that's the date that it happened. And I left American Apparel to go write, trust me, I'm lying, sometime in 2011. And so I was like, oh, I must have bought this book in like the fall of 2010 or something. And it was like, I bought it in like 2007 or eight. Like, <laughs> like it, there is this thing, we, we tend to think when we like radically change paths in life or, or whatever, that it was the result of this epiphany where we just were like, I'm wrong, I can't do this. But that's not how it is at all. It's so much more gradual. Cognitive dissonance is so much more insidious. So it was really, it was a much slower process where I realized I was part of the problem and then I went on being a part of the problem for much longer than I could possibly justify. I, I love that anecdote because it resonates so much. I had the same experience when I was writing the book on my work for Scott Pruitt. Yeah. Right? So Trump wins and I'm like, I got to get out of this. Like, I, like, what am I doing? And that I needed work. Right. So I take on this job helping Scott Pruitt on his confirmation because I know him. And and I remember having this like moment of moral clarity where I like called his spokesperson who was a friend of mine. And I was like, I cannot do this in good conscience anymore. Yeah. I, I Unless he's going to re, you know resign from the Trump administration, you guys cannot use my services. And in my brain, you know, Trump goes in in January. Like that was like in March or something, yeah. you know, like and I survived two months of this. And like, I went back and looked at my emails to find when that was. And it was like, you know, winter. Right. Yes. And so that does really resonate. But what was it for you that like, uh, when you were doing this kind of work, you know, maybe it wasn't an aha moment, but like, what were the types of things that made you feel like your, to use your phrase, you know, your contributions were net negative? Well, so I primarily worked, uh, one, with this, this company called American Apparel, which was at that time the fastest growing fashion company in, in North America. They made all their stuff in the U.S. There was this sort of ethical basis for what they were supposed to be doing. And then I also worked with lots of authors. So I thought, hey, like, first off, a corporate client is just supposed to be making the money that they're supposed to be making, right? Their obligation to society is significantly less. So when we would, I don't know, make something up in a press release or troll a media outlet or leak something, you know, that maybe wasn't true or, you know, you just do your sort of standard kind of black hat PR stuff. It just was what it was. And I was just thinking about, hey, does this help me? Does this help my client? You know, is this going to get us what we want to get? I wasn't thinking, you know, hey, what if everyone did this, right? And there was this other part of me, the compartmentalization is very real. So it's like, I knew that the stuff that I was feeding these websites was complete and total garbage and that they couldn't be trusted. And then I would read articles about world events on these same websites from these same reporters. 
and go, oh, that's what's going on in Iraq or, oh, that's what's going on here. Or, you know, like there is this sense that, oh, it's only messed up in my area and it's not messed up in the area. So I think it was this sort of twin realization of going, first off, like I'm not unique. And second, if the way I am acting becomes even less unique, like if these strategies bleed over to politics or to international affairs or, or other, let's say, higher stakes area of culture or information, you know, the consequences would be much greater. And I, I was just sort of a realization that this was a road that wasn't going in a direction that I wanted to be a part of. But like we're talking about, that doesn't mean I just pulled the car over immediately. I I sort of um, crawled to a stop. And then, you know, from time to time, if the money was right, would get back involved. That's the, right. the sort of shameful part of it. Yeah, the gut punch for me when I was reading your book was uh, one of the examples you gave that was not you was from the political world was about, you know, how kind of phony some of the boom and bust cycles are of candidates. And mm -hmm. like you send these you know, stories mm -hmm. to reporters that, to, that like tear down the candidates. And like one of the examples you cited was a story that I'd pitched. There you go. And I was like, oh man, like like our alignment uh, is, uh, was deeper than even you realized when you reached out to me. I've gotten a lot of questions. I'm sure you have too. I'm going to pick your brain on. Like both of us have gotten, you know, lucky to a certain degree and like has had certain skills or whatever, we've been able to repurpose to other yes. stuff. Not like, not everybody has that, right? Like sure. I get reached out too from people who are you know doing pr and or doing you know a similar type of work that maybe isn't actively harmful to society but you know they don't feel fulfilled by they don't feel that good about but like the zero to one of saying okay i'm gonna leave this and like you know and try something else yes a it's a big leap and then b once you make the leap it doesn't not everybody like lands in a place that's great you know uh, some mm -hmm. people struggle right either financially or finding other work so like what kind of advice do you give to people that i'm sure come to you looking for guidance on that yeah i was very fortunate in that like i really had no business working at american apparel at the age that i did it was a totally dysfunctional sort of untraditional company that you know, I ended up being the director of marketing of a publicly traded fashion company at like 21 or 22 years old. So when I left in my mid 20s, yes, I was walking away from something, but I was also still in my 20s. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I didn't have a mortgage. It was just like, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life, right? I am both appalled by, but also empathize with people that, you know, find themselves in you know, political organizations or on certain teams or whatever, where they're really not just choosing to make a moral choice. That moral choice, if they make it, also involves blowing up their entire life, right? Put aside, right. like, what else are they going to do? It's just they're walking away from friends. They're walking away from things that they've said. They're walking away from comfort. They're walking away from money. And that's, like, extraordinarily difficult to do it's probably not as scary as it seems to them in the moment, but just thinking that at 23 years old, it seemed scary to me. And in retrospect, I had so much more freedom and so much more of a safety net than other people. So yeah, it's not something to be flip about. At the same time, when you do walk away, I think you do realize, hey, you really can't do whatever you want. Like, I think if you had said to me, hey, you know, do you want to write books that sell millions of copies about ancient philosophy? I would have said I'm a college 
drop out. I, you know, I don't speak any ancient languages. You know, I would have said all that's impossible, but none of that prevented me from starting, from trying a bunch of stuff and seeing sort of what worked out. So the alternative of continuing to work in an industry or a space where you feel more and more complicit, where you feel guilty, where you are trading your soul or trading against your values, I'm not sure that's any less terrifying in the big scheme of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's the uh, the mindset of that this is the thing that I'm, I'm living is the bad thing, actually. Yes. Right. Yes. Like that the unknown like has some scary elements to it. But I need to focus on on the known might be comfortable, but it's creating all these other problems, right, in my life. And that's what I try to give advice to people. But I, I just it really it's tough when I, you know, I've heard from people who say, Yeah, I left my job and like I'm struggling. Like I need yeah. to find, you know, some other work. Well, I remember I wrote about this in one of my later books. I, I'm doing this series now on the cardinal virtues. And I, I wrote this book about courage. And I was told a story where sort of late at my time in American Apparel, Dove Charney, who, despite the ethical basis of the company, seemed to be an individual who sort of corrupted and debased himself ultimately and sort of betrayed a lot of those values that a lot of us thought were really important. But there's this time he's sort of being sued. The lawsuits are, you know, as, as much as I do believe, you know, we should believe women and uh, he was behaving inappropriately. These particular lawsuits, let's say, um, were complicated and the media coverage of them was not good or fair. And there's this moment where he's being sued by this woman. And um, he asked me to leak these photos that he had of this woman that they had taken consensually that he felt uh, sort of proved that the relationship was consensual. And he was like, I need you to, to leak these to, and he listed all these uh, outlets. And I was like, I'm just not going to do that. I was like, not only is that illegal, it's a terrible public relations strategy and it's not going to work. And the media is going to eat you alive for trying to do it. So I didn't do it, but that was sort of the extent of my objections, right? I didn't like quit on the spot. And when I walked into his office a couple of weeks later, and he's on a conference call with the New York Post and Gawker, and they're looking at the photos together, right? Like I was wrong and that the media didn't object to it, but actually did end up running the photos. You know, I didn't quit on the spot then. I didn't stand up for this woman who, you know, didn't deserve what was happening to her. And the reason I didn't do that is that wasn't a thing that you could do there and keep your job. Right. Like if I had said right. something, if I'd pushed back about it, I would have been sort of fired on the spot. Well, obviously, several years removed from that, I'm like, I didn't want to speak up about a thing that I thought was objectively wrong and illegal because I didn't want to lose my job. Right. What? How insane is that, that I wanted to keep a job from which that was a thing that you could be fired for? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And that's yeah. kind of the twistedness of the logic that we find ourselves in when we get ethically and financially compromised in an industry. Um, like, you know, you want to get out, but you don't do the things that you know are right that would get you out, right? There's this weird sort of right. self-preservation. You could tell the person to their face that they suck, that they're an idiot, that this is wrong, but you know how that's going to be received. And so you just kind of keep your head down and you keep going. And then you become, as a result, even more morally sucked into the the mess that is that place. Yeah, for the purpose of stupid shit. I mean, like one of my friends I think about, had, uh, who made one of these decisions, like left his parents, like family company, 
to become to do videography work and yeah. uh, you know his financial the financial change for him has been you know catastrophic if that's what you yes. care about but the happiness and the fulfillment and the value you know the type and the type of life he wants to live has improved you know ten opposite tenfold right and sure. so you don't anyway my question for you one other thing I wanted to talk to you about moving to the stoicism I want to start from square one so you've written this book trust me I'm lying uh, it does well I'm sure that yeah. the publisher is coming to you saying. Let's do more expose books because uh, mm -hmm. I know what the publishers want. Yes. <laughs> um, and you say, no, I'm going to become a modern day st stoic philosopher now and write about that instead. Mm -hmm. Like, where did you get the the balls for that, frankly, um, I guess is the question. <laughs> well, look, th that's sort of my point about transitions, right? Is like people see the end result and they go, oh, that's obviously what you had in mind or that's obviously the transition that you began in that moment. But really, I just knew that I didn't want to write the same book again. And I thought that I had a pretty good idea for a singular book on one topic, right? The idea that all these other books would follow, that it would become this sort of multimedia, you know, platform that it would branch out in all these different ways. That would have been preposterous if I thought that would happen. And, and if I did think that would have happened, I probably wouldn't have settled for the relatively minuscule amount of money that my publisher was willing to pay me for that second book. I got half, but so the first Stoicism book I wrote was The Obstacles Away. And um, I've gotten a, a very big advance for Trust Me, I'm Lying. And uh, my publisher offered me less than half for the second book. And I thought that was a great deal. Like it, it wasn't like, oh, I know this is going to pay off. So of course I'll take less now to get paid more later. It was like, oh, it's larger than $1. That sounds like a good deal. You know, I just had some sense that it was something I was very interested in, something that I thought could do okay. But beyond that, I was uh, in the dark like everyone else. I just knew that as interesting as the media is in things about the media, that that was just not a sustainable like area to carve out or to write about. And I'd always been really interested in philosophy and probably what I wanted to write about all along. I just had this other book that I had to get out first, which was like the one based on my actual experiences. One of the follow-on books that you've written called Ego is the Enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to ask you about that. I was complaining with one of my friends about after Why We Did It came out about, I don't know what, what I was talking about. It seems too self-important and too mm -hmm. narcissistic to do. And then my friend cutting me down for size, right? It's like just writing the book you wrote is narcissistic enough. Sure. <laughs> so you need to like mm -hmm. let that go, right? The notion yeah. of writing a, you know, some a quasi memoir. How'd you balance that, right? You're writing this book called Ego is the Enemy, but like just by the nature of, of writing these types of books where you're providing life advice to people is an egotistical endeavor. So how do you like kind of process all that? Yeah, I mean, first off, I, I would make a big distinction between ego and confidence, right? And I think that's one of sure. the problems we have in our culture is that people who are not competent and people who are not confident themselves, so they don't know what that looks and feels like, are very easily fooled by ego masquerading as competence and confidence, right? Like they go, oh, that person's very loud. That person's very sure of themselves. That that person's very aggressive. So they must be good. They must know what they're talking about. And of course they don't, right? I think 
actual competent and confident people are usually pretty quiet, usually pretty humble. They're usually focused on doing whatever it is that they do. They're not sort of actively seeking out the spotlight for the most part. But yes, the creative act is inherently, you know, or at least partly rooted in ego. I'll give you a good example. When the publisher, ultimately Ego's the Enemy was sort of part of a trilogy of, of three books that I wrote about so philosophy. But when I was doing Ego's the Enemy, it was the second, and we weren't quite sure that it was part of a, of a series. And so the publisher had this, like, what they thought was this interesting idea for how to market it. And it was just an all white book that said, Ego is the Enemy in the Center. And then it didn't have my name on it. It didn't say like from New York Times bestselling right. off. Like it was just that ego is the enemy. And that was all. And um, I was like, immediately, no, like immediately, no, because it's like I wrote this fucking book and you're not going to put my name on it. Like there is something about publishing, of course, like if we were truly and completely confident and self-contained. Would you need to publish it, right? Would you need your name on it? Would you want to go solicit blurbs from other important people telling you what a masterwork you've heralded, right? So there is something, I think, inherently egotistical in all of us. And I think the idea that you don't have an ego is a very egotistical thing. I just try to be very clear or honest with myself. I just try to think like, am I doing this out of ego? Uh, is ego blinding me here? Or have I thought about what am I actually trying to accomplish? So as it turns out, like I want my name on the book because I want my name on the book, but also it wasn't a very compelling concept and it made it hard for people who had read my previous books to know that it was from me. And so there's all these different reasons that you end up doing what you're doing. And I just think it's important that ego not be the primary or the solitary reason you are doing what you are doing. And do you have check-ins with yourself about this? I try to. Like, I, I've just got a round of notes from my editor on the book that I'm working on now. And, you know, your first instinct from ego is like, what the fuck is this? You know, like, who are you to tell me, like, how to do this? Like, I reject all of the, you know, you want to call your agent, yeah. like, tell him I'm not doing any of it, you know? But then when I sit with it, right, usually space is a nice sort of ego antidote. When I sit with it, when I think about it, when I talk to other people, I, I you know, maybe there's something here. I'm not going to do all of it. I'm not like a pushover and I have no sense of self. But you have that sort of initial reaction out of ego. For instance, a normal person, when they are attacked by the media, doesn't like it, right? That's not a thing that one enjoys. Now, printing out said article and writing in Sharpie how much you hate the journalist who did it. This is a Trump so, tactic subtle, for people. Yeah. I, I think people listening to this podcast are, are catching the Trump references. By the yes. way, I, ca I caught several of them in the dad book. I was saying the JVL is going to be on. I have one other thing that will get you and then bring in JVL for the dad stuff. Amazing. But while it's on the topic, you had a, it was a very unsubtle uh, lesson from Margaret Thatcher's dad about uh, accepting losses in the yes. book. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. You have Republican readers of this, obviously, of what you're doing. And so is that like purposeful? Or are you trying to? kind of nudging, you know, trying to, you know, send him a little subliminal message? I do. I mean, I think it's funny, like, if any person raised Trump as their child, they would consider themselves an abysmal failure as a parent, right? You're like, okay, he's incredibly vain. He's, you know, incredibly entitled. He's been married. Three, like, you would list all these things out. You'd be like, even if they became the president, you'd still be like, what have I done, Right. You can't dance around the fact that that's sort of an objective truth. But I have said this to people who email me and they get upset about like, why did you talk about this or that? I go, look, 
what is the point of having a platform if I can't say what I think? You know, I'm very wary of and preemptively try to avoid audience capture. And I think among creators and writers, that is one of the big problems of our time. You have so much data and information. And in some cases, like if you're a Substack, that data is like directly tied to your monthly payment yeah. that it really screws with writers. And I think this is why you see left or right, somebody writes one thing and it resonates with one audience. You can kind of just project where that arc is going to end up. They're going to end up all the way on the other end of the spectrum. So I, I try to avoid that entirely. Now let me get to JBL and do our fatherly extravaganza, but I have one last thing for you. Yeah. You tweeted out your seven tips for life the other day. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, one of them, this is, uh, I think is particularly going to be apt for the Speaking of audience capture for the uh, audience, for the listeners and viewers of this podcast, uh, is your second piece of advice, don't watch the news. Yes. So I think the bulwark counts as that. Uh, I think we probably have some audience members who are spending too much time watching the news. I, I don't think that means you should abandon us. Give them some some wisdom related to, to people's current news habits. Well, I know you just did a TV hit, so this is, uh, you know, biting the hand that feeds, but and you can just, just slay me, by the way. You can just totally slag me and my complicity in the, you know, cable, news, media, political, industrial complex. I think it's important. I didn't say don't follow the news. I said don't watch the news. Watch the right? news. Don't watch the news. Yes. Sorry. I don't know anyone who I really respect who watches a lot of cable news, right? Like, like it is the worst way to possibly become informed about any thing that's happening in the world. It is the worst way. I, I interviewed Stephen A. Smith the other day and I was talking to him about this. I was like, yeah. it really hit me one time. I was watching First Take and just like the nonsense that they get into on these shows. It's like, horrible. Uh, is LeBron James the worst of all time? You know, it's just like, or like, should LeBron Are James retire? Are you racist if you think Jokic is better than Joel Embiid? Exactly. Like they literally they, have that They're segment. just picking up things to find conflict about, right? But yeah. but when you're watching it about sports, you see how preposterously impotent and pointless it is. Like you, yeah. I like sports, but you know that none of this is having any impact on what's actually happening. Like watching football on Sunday is very different than watching Stephen A. Smith speculate about what may happen four days from now. So anyways, the point is cable news for the actual news is no different. In fact, it's like even more insidious. My operative word there is don't watch the news. Okay. At the same time, I feel like a lot of people are following the news when they would do better to wait a little bit and then find out what the news was. Yeah, for sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like reports about whether the debt ceiling bill would pass or not. Not being a hedge fund manager is not a relevant piece of information in my life. Whether it happens nice. or not, right? Will Ron DeSantis enter the race or not, right? Is different than Ron DeSantis enters the race, right? And the breakingness and the real timeness of news in whatever medium you're following is, I think, largely the problem. Uh, and also though, I go like, look, I already know who I'm not voting for. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and so why am I following the fresh horrors of the people that I already know everything I need to know about? 
I think that unfortunately that is sage wisdom that I hope the bulwark folks will take when it comes to the cable TV side, yes. but maybe not to the rest of it. You know, maybe just, you know, we, we can be you know, the kind of cheat day, you know, on the don't watch the news guys, the cheat day. I like podcasts though, in that they are less susceptible to sort of clickbaitism. You know, there's no sure. viral element. They're also long For form. Sure. I come here when I have a nuanced opinion, right? Like yes. I don't tweet out when I'm like, I'm not really sure. Yes. That's what, anyway, totally. we could do an hour on this. I want to get JVL and do the Father's Day stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, we're back with JVL. The green room discussion was pretty good. These guys are working together on an artisanal magazine that will be only of niche interest to a few people who want to reflect on the news. To Stoics. Well, to Stoics, to, uh, to Stoic philosophers uh, and, and those interested in Stoic philosophy. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Next week is Father's Day. We wanted to do it this week so that if you have a father in your life that needs, you know, a nice little gift, we have two men that are authors. My normal co-host, JVL, wrote a book about parenting. Uh, Ryan has written The Daily Dad, 366 Meditations on Parenting, Love, and Raising Great Kids. And so we're going to do this a little differently than we usually do on Sunday, where I'm putting both of them in the hot seat. And so for starters, I want you guys to give our listeners your bona fides. How many children have you sired? And where and where are they currently in their lives? Uh, they know. I got four, 15, 13, 10, and 6. Okay, Ryan. Gosh, got a six-year-old and a four-year-old, two boys. I don't want to spoil the ride for you, Ryan. <laughs> but it, it, gets, it's, it starts to get dicier. Tell me if this is right or wrong. I made it through most of your 366 virtues on the plane last night. And the core advice here to me was from one of the specific meditations, which is childhood can disappear with the disappearance of adulthood. It's up to the parents to adjust their behavior and actions. I mean, and so your advice to parents is, is less really about, about what to do with your kids that you're annoyed yes. with, but like what to do with yourself in order to be a good adult and to protect their childhood. Talk about that. Yeah, I was thinking about this actually recently because I, I also wrote this book on discipline. If you said to a parent that discipline is essential to being a good parent, our assumption is you mean like being a disciplinarian, right? Like enforcing discipline. But it's actually self-discipline is really the thing that matters, being in command or control of one's self that I think is the sort of critical variable. That's what stoicism is. Basically, the idea is like uh, focus on you, not on other people, and the sort of the rest follows. I think people have a lot that they try to make their kids do that they don't themselves do at all. Or conversely, like a, an example is like your kid is throwing a tantrum and then you throw an adult tantrum in response and you wonder why it doesn't snap them out of it. You know, I do talk a lot about that in the book. It's just like, what do you need to do to set your kids up and your family up for success? That's much more important and also much more manageable than the other stuff. Okay, here's my problem with that though. I said, God, sometimes you just have no, I mean, have you, has your six-year-old never thrown a shoe at you in a music store? Yeah. Okay, because I had a shoe thrown at me inside a music store, and, you know, that's not great, okay? That's uh, not a great experience, and you got to get them out. Did you, like, George W. Bush dodge it? <laughs> I did. I know. I got smoked by the shoe. And you got to, you know, be able <laughs> to get them out of the store. And you can't have a stoic conversation with them about, you know, the values of temperance at that moment. And so this one's to you, Ryan, first, and then, and then Jay, I want you to react yeah. to that. How do we discipline ourselves when, you know, the kids are kids. They're going to act crazy sometimes. My six-year-old spit on me this morning. It was uh, very unpleasant. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, I know what would have happened if I had spat on my parents, right? I would have got, like, smacked upside the head, right? Like, my parents would have responded to 
a violation with a violation, right? And I tried to just catch myself. First off, he's six. This doesn't say anything about him as a person. It doesn't matter if anyone saw it. Thankfully, we were at home. But like, you know, I'm never going to see these strangers in the store again. Why am I so concerned with what they think about it, you know, with how I look? Do I really need to extrapolate out that he's going to end up in prison because he has no self-control and he thinks you can spit? Like, he's not thinking about any of this. He's a child with poor impulse control, right? As I was a child with poor impulse control. And nothing my parents did helped me with that impulse control. Not being six helped me with that impulse control, right? So I was like, look, man, go in the bathroom and get a towel and you can clean this up, right? Like, this is on you. I didn't spit on myself. You can go clean it up. Now, was I upset in the initial moment? Yes, but I feel like I caught myself before I set a bad example in response to a bad thing that happened, right? And then also kind of trying to dispense with the labels altogether, which is this is so minor and so low stakes, and it's only my extrapolation out and my insecurities about whether I'm doing a good job as a parent or not that is blowing this up into this teachable moment, you know, this stops here kind of a thing. Hey, JBL, that's all nice and good. I agree with pretty much all of it. You have four children in your house, though. And, you know, I mean, sometimes this is yeah. not realistic advice. You know, nicely asking them to go to the bathroom. Ryan seems like he has very nice sexual. Actually, they've gotten spit on. I, that sometimes doesn't work, you know? Sometimes you, they go into the bathroom and the toothpaste gets thrown against the wall and, you know, they pee on the ground and they start screaming at the top of their lungs. Like, so how are you navigating that in a house of four in a way that balances Ryan's wise advice with, like, the realities of having a million children in your home? I mean, he's just right, right? I mean, the, the most powerful tool you have is the ability to model. Right. And this is, you know, which is, I think, essentially what he's getting at when he says to be adult. And that's the thing which is going to stay with them longest. And so what you have to do is you got to, like, tamp down those reactions in you. And so you need, I mean, I personally, like everybody's different. I personally really strive to have, like, a tiny bit of ironic distance. Not so much so that you become, like, the bad father in Persuasion, you know, or something like one of the Jane Austen books. But enough so that you can be intentional, because this is this is the real truth. I mean, you can do just about anything as a parent, so long as you're being intentional about it and you're not reacting without control of yourself, right? And you know, so as long as you're being intentional, that's I think one of the keys. What am I? Am I wrong about that, Ryan? What do you think? I think that's right, and I'm not saying I don't ever not do that. I, I think everyone screws up all the time, which is the other thing that I try to work on a lot. My wife and I talk about this. Yeah, I'm not sure my parents ever apologized or admitted error to me for any reason at any time in my entire childhood. So when I do respond to being spit on with not self-control and patience and understanding, I try to go, hey, man, I really didn't like being spit on as people don't like being spit on. And that's why I reacted the way that I did. But that's not how I should have reacted. And I'm working on not reacting that way. 100%. That's such a powerful thing to do with your kids. Totally. And just understanding like the forces that are acting on you at any moment. Like it's only in retrospect that I've come to understand my parents were anxious when we were traveling at the airport, not 
that that's how all people are at the airport, right? And that like, I too feel anxiety and stress at the airport when I'm trying to get, you know, three people through the security into the gate on time, but that I can be like, this is why I'm acting the way that I'm acting and it's not rational and I'm working on it. And understanding that, oh, hey, I recognize why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that is the first step in hopefully not doing that thing anymore. Um, I want to get from each of you. I'm sorry, Tim. I I just have, I think a very good life hack, uh, especially for for young kids, small kids. This is a weird thing that I learned relatively late to the game. But when you want to have a conversation like any of these sorts of conversations, either where, you know, you're disciplining them or sending them to the bathroom or, you know, you're apologizing to them, literally get down to their level. There is a weird thing where children respond differently to a an adult who is towering over them than they do to somebody who is at eye level with them. And I've seen this now through like parenting, through coaching, through talking to other people's kids. It is like a magic trick. That is good advice, though. I've tried that before and been told I'm stinky when I got closer to her. So, you know, it's not 100% <laughs> work. It does help. Okay. I want to get from each of you. I want to go quick. Uh, like, I, when I was reading Ryan's advice, so I want to get first, Ryan, your feedback on this, and then I want to hear from each of you what are the things that you struggle with the most. The thing that really hit me of the ruminations was one that said, your kids can only read your lips, not your mind. Yes. And that was like kind of a wake-up call for me because... You know, I'm like pretty loose lipped, as you might imagine, as a podcast host. And, you know, a lot of times there is irony, right? Mm-hmm. I carry through with this four decades of knowledge of like what I'm really meaning, what I'm really thinking, my husband understands. And that was kind of a wake up call to me. So I just really wanted to hear you riff on that piece of advice a little bit, right? My wife and I work together, right? And we run this bookstore together. I couldn't have done 90% of the things I've done without her sort of operating behind the scenes and making that stuff happen. So, we have a lot of work conversations, right? We're mostly on the same page, but we're, let's say, talking about someone that we're both frustrated with, right? Or that something that's not going well or whatever, right? And we realized that our kids thought we were fighting with each other, but we were talking about work, right? So like, right. like we could feel the tension that the kids were like sensing that something was wrong, that we weren't getting along. Suddenly they were misbehaving, they were acting out and we're like, we realize like, oh, we can't talk about this stuff in front of them. Or we have to say, hey, we're talking about a work thing, but between us, everything is good. We're actually on the same team here. We're just getting to the bottom of a frustrating situation, but there's no love lost between the two of us, right? And sort of realizing that, hey, yeah, when you're making fun of someone or you're being sarcastic or you are venting because that's how you're dealing with something, your kids are just thinking, oh, that's what mom and dad think of their siblings, right? You're leaving Thanksgiving right. and you're making fun of your sister's life choices or your brother's life choices or right. whatever. They don't realize that deep down you love that person. Deep down you accept that person, you know, that this is how you and your spouse are bonding or whatever, right? Like just understanding that you're operating on levels of complexity that they are not operating on and that it's very unfair to simply expose that to them and not expect it to change how they treat people or inform what they think is normal or appropriate or what's happening. I want from both of you, whoever has this on the tip of their tongue can jump in first. So you've written these books that have, you know, guidance and wisdom. Ryan's book in particular, 
is basically modeling perfect behavior, perfect parental behavior, which is aspirational, which I appreciate. So which, what are the things that you're, you're writing this or you're suggesting this, you're advising this? What's the thing that you're like, I'm putting this down, but I'm bad at this. And then how do you, you know, try to fight your instincts? Look, the thing which I focus most on is teaching the management of failure. And that is something that I did not do well with. And I got very lucky at when I, I'm in general, I think most people wind up hitting some form of catastrophic failure in their lives. And it, when if it comes too early, then you don't learn anything from it. And if it comes too late, then maybe it wrecks your life, right? I mean, if, if catastrophic failure hits you at like 35, it can be hard to, to recover from it. There's a sweet spot where if you fail at a really large level, you can learn from it and make it productive. I was very bad at that and it's something I'm cognizant of and it's something I've really thought a lot about with my kids is trying to sort of talk them up to about failure and try to help them be prepared to manage failure in productive ways when it does come to their lives. Yeah, I, I would say I struggle with all 366 pieces of advice in the book. So uh, that's that's <laughs> sort of why I wrote it. I, I, I found that uh, when I wrote Daily Stoke that I got a lot out of writing it, right? Like it's great for the readers, but the primary reason for writing it was that I get something out of writing it, sort of going over the ideas every single day, forcing myself to put down what I'm aspiring to be on paper and then returning to it. I found that to be true, not just with the book itself for The Daily Dad, but I, I do this email version of it every day also. The idea of sort of meditating on these, you know, let's call it a dozen or two dozen kind of basic principles or ways of thinking has been really, really beneficial to me. But I, I would say I struggle with all of them. <laughs> Probably getting upset being the most, like losing one's temper being the the one I struggle with the most. So my oldest is six, let's say, in six years, I can't think of a time where I got upset that now I'm like, that was definitely the right call. You know, like I'm so, I'm so glad I got mad at that four-year-old. Like it really <laughs> taught them an important lesson and, you know, we're closer for it. It never ages well, right? That's <laughs> what I have come to find. And that's true, not just with kids, but in life. All right. I want one piece of personal advice for both of you going forward, then uh, we'll end yes. up something sweet. My personal advice is, so I was listening to another podcast where we were talking about parenting and the two guys were talking about their teenage son and, you know, how to manage a, a teenage son that was a bit mm -hmm. of a troublemaker, right? And as somebody who was a teenage son, I was a bit of a troublemaker. And so like, I was listening and I was like screaming through the thing. I was like, I know yeah, how to yeah. handle me. You know, I know how to handle this, but I've got <laughs> a teenage daughter eventually yes. coming in front of me. And that is a very different animal, you know, and it's something that I like had to think about. I know you have two sons around, but you're still thinking about this process as a dad. And like in your book, you talk a little bit about leash, like, you know, letting them make mistakes and learning from the mistakes. And unfortunately, like for teen girls, like that might not be as possible, right? Like a, a bad mistake that leads to sexual violence or, you know, that can lead to like, the consequences. And so I just kind of wonder, how do you kind of think about that either, particularly in the context of teen girls, but then just broadly about like that question of leash, giving enough leash to like let them find themselves without, you know, risking catastrophic consequences. Although it is funny, we think we know how to reach people. Like I was talking to a friend of mine that I went to high school with and I was talking something and I was like, I wish someone had just pulled me aside and said this, right? Like I was like, that would... Right. And, and he just looked at me and he was like, what are you talking about? They did that 
several times. You know, he was like, that was the main (laughs) thing that I heard adults say to you when you were that age, right? So there is, I think, a fundamental unreachableness on some things, like some things you just have to learn. You have to make those mistakes. I think that's the scary high wire act of being a parent, though, is you are scared that any one of those mistakes are catastrophic or unsurvivable or that, you know, leads to some sort of lasting trauma or pain. And it may well be. And I'm not saying you just dismiss that, but it is the idea, though, that ultimately you're trying to raise a kid who is resilient enough, competent enough, you know, supported enough, loved enough that pretty much anything is survivable. So I think understanding that your kid is more resilient than you probably think they are, it, it should give yourself a little bit more leash. I'm totally intimidated by and baffled by how I'm going to approach these things as they get older. And I think having some humility about it is really important. Like I say this in the book, but like any parent who doesn't think that they're struggling or doing a bad job, the people who who aren't thinking that are either terrifyingly egotistical and overconfident or are completely neglectful and not thinking about it at all. So to a certain degree, that kind of, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm not sure I'm up to this. That's probably a sign that you are approaching it with the right sensitivity and earnestness and attention. JBL, how do you balance this? We had this question that somebody emailed us the other day that said, I'm worried that my kid in college is going to be a Tim and I want them to be a Sarah. And he said, how do I stop that? And I was like, the harder you try to make that kid not a Tim is more that they'll become a Tim. What's your advice on that as you think about, you know, the teen, the older years? One thing Ryan said, you know, the the problem with the six-year-old is that he's a six-year-old, right? And what will help him grow out of that and have his impulse control grow is is becoming like an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And all that's true. It's true through the teen years, too. And one of the things that I worry about is that the world has encroached with problems that used to be like problems you'd hit in your early 20s, became problems that you hit in your teens, what used to be problems that hit in your teens now come your early teens or your tweens when kids are just as a matter of emotional maturity and experience and wisdom and all that stuff, just much less prepared to handle those sorts of challenges. And so, you know, my wife and I have tried to push back against that stuff just to try to keep it a little bit further out into the future. Part of that is like access to technology and like we're basically Amish in that way. And I felt a little weird about it for a while. And look, not everybody can do that, right? Like if you are in a situation where your kid needs to be like, you know, taking a bus to get to school, like, you know, 45 minutes away and needs to pick up like they're going to have to have a phone or something, right? That's, but if you can keep some of that stuff pushed back and away from them for as long as possible, uh, all you're really doing is buying them the space so that their brains develop and their experiential knowledge of the world develops enough so that when they hit the same type of stuff that, again, you and I would have hit at age 20, maybe they'll hit it at 19 instead of 14. Okay, and we have to end on something positive. This is a Father's Day episode. I want to hear from both of you an example of fatherhood that like has really inspired you, something that somebody has done, something that you see. Maybe it's someone in your life or your father. Maybe it's you want to pat yourself on the back. I don't want to prejudge your answer. Fire away, Ryan, and uh, JVL, you can close us out. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I, I write in the book about Bruce Springsteen, and he talks about this idea of being an ancestor or a ghost, right? He's like, are you going to deal with the pain 
and the struggles and problems and generational issues of uh, your family and let it stop with you and help your kids, you know, sort of transcend that? Or are you going to not just perpetrate it on them, but sort of haunt and hover over them? And um, I think he's a fascinating guy. I mean, there's not, rock stars don't have a great track record of raising great kids. One of his kids is like an Olympic equestrian and the other just became like a New York City firefighter. Like, it seems like he did a pretty good job. He's been married to the same woman the whole time. You never know. You could bankrupt yourself speculating on what people are like in their private lives. But I, I'm always inspired when somebody who came from shitty circumstances does a half-decent job at a thing that nobody really showed them how to do. JVL? Uh, you know what? I'll pat myself on the back. I'll tell you about my single greatest moment of parenting. Right. So uh, my oldest- I love that. My oldest plays baseball, and when he was 11, I wound up as a guest coach for the day for Little League. And uh, so I'm just, you know, I'm following what Coach Corey gave me to do, and uh, my kid is pitching. And he hits a kid in the head with a pitch. It's the first time he's ever done this. This kid goes down like a sack of flour. It is a horrifying moment. You know, both coaches, me and the other coach, sprint out of the dugout. This kid is knocked out. He winds up going to the emergency room. Everything's fine. You know, the, the end of the story is this other kid is fine, but it's a terrible moment. And after about 20 minutes, the game finally gets back on and the ump says, play ball. And uh, I look out and my kid is standing on the mound sort of. Mm-hmm. So I call time. I walk out. And I see he's crying. And he says, hey, dad, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't ever want to pitch again. I cannot hurt somebody like that again. And I said to him, buddy, listen. You got a job to do here, and your job is to just get your team through this inning. That's all you have to do. They're counting on you to do that. I said, and we got a mercy rule here. You can just walk the next seven batters. That'll get them to five runs, and then it's done, right? This is, but you can do this because, you know, like this is kind of your job, and they depend on you, and uh, and it's going to be okay, right? And then I sort of like looked at him. I was like, there's no crying in baseball, and realized that he had no fucking idea what I was talking about because he's 11 years old, and he's never seen Bull Durham. Yeah, or sorry, League of Their Own, rather. So, uh, you know, and then I, League of Their Own. yeah, and so I, you know, I slapped him on the ass and, uh, you know, jaunted back to the dugout and he stood out there and he, uh, and he finished the inning and came off and, and everything was fine and moved on. And, uh, I think that became the genesis of my kid. He's a very good pitcher. He's a great fucking teammate. Like, he is a great, great, he's like, you know, on every team, he is, the kid that everybody loves and he's the guy who's always talking guys up. And I think that was the genesis of him taking sort of, you know, like leadership role in the clubhouse stuff seriously. And so I crushed that one there. I'm a bad parent in many other ways, but I did crush that one. Great job. There's I a, love that. I don't know which stoic virtue that is. Wisdom, courage, justice, it's or all temperance. Of them. It's <laughs> all it. of them. It's all four. Um, this has been so good. Ryan, I apologize for keeping a little bit over. Thank all you good. so much for doing this. My bizarro alter ego down in Bastrop. If you find yourself in Austin, go to the Painted Porch. Go visit Ryan. Don't go visit Elon Musk's new monstrosity that he's building down the road. Um, it's a wonderful store. Go buy his books. Uh, We'll see you back here on Wednesday for the normal next level. Uh, Thank you all. See you next time. Peace. Yeah.